السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Can someone just give me a mic check, please? Make sure that uh, you can hear me okay. Is the sound okay on my side? If it's okay, then inshallah we can begin. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد. So welcome to um, our lesson with the Quranic progression and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to continue with our tafsir of Surah Al-Duha. Uh, I have just a couple of things that I wanted to mention before we begin just so that we have some uh, some clarity and some dates in mind. Uh, we have inshallah ta'ala including today's lesson four lessons left for QP. For this academic year, so that's basically uh, today and then inshallah ta'ala the next three weeks, which kind of takes us up to the last lesson being the 6th of of April, bithnillahi ta'ala. So the 6th of April will be our last lesson for this academic year. And then as we do every year now, you know, you, you're kind of accustomed to the to the academic year that we have with QP is we're going to inshallah ta'ala break for, for Ramadan and that summer-ish kind of break. Uh, is going to continue until after Hajj, until after Eid al-Adha, then inshallah ta'ala will start at some time in probably late August to early September with Nillahi ta'ala. Uh, that's the first point. The second point is uh, with regards to the reading of a Zamzam, just to confirm for those of you that are attending our reading of the Manduma of a Zamzami, the classic poem on Quranic sciences, then inshallah ta'ala next week will be our final lesson. And next week will be a long lesson, just to keep make that clear to everyone who's attending and it's part of that lesson and session and you know people don't get surprised next week when we're sitting there for probably two hours if not more uh, we have a few things to get through inshallah ta'ala so it's going to be a longer lesson so just be prepared for that ta'ala. but once it's done inshallah ta'ala then then you're done and you have your monday evenings back for whatever else it is that you need to do that's the the first kind of announcement that i wanted to make the second issue that i wanted to uh, bring to your attention is that over the next week or two or three uh, sometime before we finish, we're going to be giving out a, a survey uh, of some sort in some shape or form. Not quite sure exactly uh, what, but just to give you a heads up, I want some feedback from you as the uh, regular students of QP, people who have, uh, you know, I'm sure attended this now for, for some while. Some of you have been here with us from the beginning, uh, from three years odd ago, and others from amongst you may have joined after that, but you know, you're regular QP students now, and by now you're very familiar with the style of the way that we do QP in terms of our pace, in terms of the level of detail that we go into, in terms of in terms of what it is that we're trying to achieve as well and our overall goal and objective by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's permission. But the reason for the, um, you know, I think it's a good point now three years in to do some, uh, you know, self-reflection, some, some uh, just feedback just to see what people think and just to see uh, what it is that they want in terms of this tafsir class. And I'm open to suggestions in terms of uh, things like, you know, is the pace okay? Is the level of detail okay? Um, obviously, as you can see, it's taken us three years now to finish the Qisar al-Mufassal, inshallah ta'ala. By the end of the year, this academic year, we'll have finished Surah al-Duha. And so that's basically three years of doing what are the shortest surahs of the Qur'an, the Book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Let alone, obviously, as the surahs get longer and they become more detailed and we go into uh, what we consider to be, uh, what we consider to be, 
uh, you know, like the longest surahs of the Quran, especially after we finish Juz Amma, inshallah ta'ala, and we go into longer surahs, it is possible that that can even take longer because of the issues that will come up, and then you have fiqhi discussions, and you have many other discussions that may come up as well, even though we don't necessarily go into all of them in detail, but even speaking about some of them briefly requires, obviously, time. Everything, every tangent, every detail, every issue requires a bit of time. So we're going to be giving that out, inshallah, over maybe next week. I'll announce exactly how that's going to be done. And I would really like that information back uh, as quickly as possible, even before the year end, so that perhaps I can mention in one of the forthcoming lessons, inshallah ta'ala, just some of the main points that people had. And then we can uh, see if anyone has any more that they want to add to that. And then uh, by next year, then inshallah, when we begin, you know, if something needs tweaking, something needs changing, and I'm not talking about anything drastic. We're not going to change the tafsir class to make it into a brief thing where, you know, we're going to do like a, a surah or a juz within a few weeks. That's not that's not our style at QP, and it's not our, our goal and objective. But even in terms of detail, there are levels of detail, and there's levels of how much depth that you can go in. Even at the moment, uh, you know, there's still depth that I don't go into. There's still details and issues that I, I don't go into because of how much time it would take and so I still make that judgment already but what I would like from you is feedback in terms of how you think that judgment is being made whether you think that it's okay it's on point or whether you think that it needs tweaking I either way we need more detail we need less detail and I appreciate that there are people here of different levels and different backgrounds and, and perhaps even different uh, interest levels and so on and so that's okay that's what we want to see we want to see that variety of people's feedback and and what they think and uh, inshallah ta'ala, based upon that, and with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's help, we will be able to move forward. Uh, that's the, uh, that's, those are the two points that I wanted to mention to you, inshallah ta'ala, uh, before we continue with our tafsir. So, last week we began with the tafsir of Surah Al-Duha, and we began with its introduction, uh, and we mentioned that the surah is generally known in the classical works of tafsir and hadith by two names, either Surah Al-Duha, or Surah Wadduha, with the Waw at the beginning, as is mentioned in the first verse of this Surah. And in terms of its revelation, it is a Makki Surah, from the early revelations of the Qur'an, and that is mentioned by Ijma'ah. It is considered to be an issue of consensus amongst the scholars of Tafsir, as was mentioned last week by a number of those scholars of Tafsir in their works. And then we have a cause of revelation for this Surah, and we spoke about the causes of revelation yesterday in the in the in the poem of Zamzami, and we've discussed it here in some detail as well in one of the specials that we did on revelation. Um, but this is uh, this uh, surah in particular. It, there are, and we will come on to this in further detail, inshallah ta'ala, today, when we will see the different various narrations that speak about the reason why the surah was revealed. But last week we mentioned the main narration, which is the most authentic, and that is one in Al Bukhari the narration that the Prophet ﷺ was ill for a couple of days and then he didn't receive revelation and so the Quraysh or one of the women of Quraysh and it is said in some narrations that it was the wife of Abu Lahab Umm Jameel she started to say that the Prophet ﷺ has been abandoned that he is someone who is detested and so this surah was revealed surat wadduha so that's where we got up to last week and then we began with the first verse in which Allah takes an oath by al-duha and we mentioned the differences amongst the scholars of tafsir concerning the meaning of al-duha because al-duha literally can mean a part of the day which is the early morning part and that is as we saw last week the translation that most translators if not all of them that we saw last week have taken in terms of the meaning of that verse and then you have the other opinion which is a 
very common opinion amongst the scholars with tafsir, the likes of Imam al-Tabari and, and Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti and al-Qurtubi and, and Siddiq al-Hassan Khan and many among, amongst the scholars with tafsir took the position that the meaning of al-Duha is, is the whole day, not just the morning part or the early part of the day, but all of the day. And they said that that, that is because it goes therefore into contrast of what is going to be mentioned in verse number two, which is the second issue that Allah will take an oath by. And that is where we will begin our tafsir from today. Verse number two, in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم والليل إذا سجى And by the night when it grows still. Uh, that's the translation of Abdul Halim. Mufti Taqi, by the night when it becomes peaceful. Muhsin Khan, and by the night when it is still or darkens. And Sahih International, and by the night when it covers with darkness. So we have, again, I think more or less a, uh, you know, an agreement amongst those translations anyway, in terms of the meaning of the word Saja. No doubt the word Layl means night, right? And that's something which we've, uh, which we've mentioned. And the likes of Siddiq Hassan Khan and others from amongst the scholars with Tafsir that took the position that verse number one was an oath by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for the day. They used it because they said, or they took that position because they said, and verse number two speaks about the night. So Allah Azza wa takes an oath by, the op- by opposites. Right, you have, and this is very common in the Quran as you see. Allah takes an oath by the sun and then the moon, by the night and by the day. Right, and so it's very common that Allah uses opposites at times. And so they say that this is the same. Right, this is the same as that Allah knows best. But anyway, walayli ida saja. Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said the meaning of the word saja. What does the meaning of the word saja mean? He says, ida sakana bin nas when the night becomes still or when it becomes tranquil, meaning that it has set in, right? And Al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullah ta'ala said something similar. Al-Layl idha albas al-Nas idha ja, The night that covers people once it has arrived. And Al-Dahak said that the word saja means ghatta kulla shay. It has covered everything. And the reason why they're saying this is because clearly the night has stages, right? So the time of Maghrib when night sets in, which is sunset, the night is very uh, is very early, right? It's very it's very young, in the sense that you can still see a lot of light. The night has yet to settle, and so that is the time of Salatul Maghrib. Isha comes in when when the redness and that light of the sky disappears, and the night now has become still. Night has actually settled in, right? And even the period after Isha, as the night goes later and later, then that is the period when uh, when the night becomes still and tranquil, in the sense that it has now settled, and it is there. And this comes from the meaning of the word saja. Right? And, and we'll speak about some of the differences of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, as you can see, concerning the meaning of the word saja. And Imam al-Tabir ta'ala will mention it in, in more detail. But the meaning of the word saja in linguistic Arabic, in, linguistically, or literally in the Arabic language, is to cover. Right? And so that's why you say that someone who is covered by a cloth or by a, a blanket is musajja, right? musajja bithob, meaning that is covered. And so it means that all of you are covered from top to to bottom, right? From from head to toe. That's the meaning linguistically of the word saja. And that's why many of the scholars of tafsir took that position that it means when the night is deep dark, it is darkened, it is still, it is tranquil, meaning that it's not the early part of the night, nor is it the latter part of the night towards Fajr, when now the light starts to come in again, right? But this is in the middle of the night, the deep dark darkness of the night. And that is the time that Allah is taking an oath by. And this is something which was mentioned by uh, Al-Asma'i. And they say that the word saja is because 
what essentially the night is doing is it's covering the daylight, right? And so because it covers the daylight, they said that is the reason why Allah Azza wa says or uses this description of it being sajjah. And Imam al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, in his sahih, he mentions the, uh, the statement of Mujahid, rahimahullah, and he said that the meaning of sajjah is when it becomes still. And he mentioned that others from amongst them said that it means when the dark, the, the, the night becomes dark and when it settles. And Imam al-Tabari, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions in his tafsir three opinions amongst the scholars of tafsir concerning the meaning of the word sajjah. He says from amongst them are those who said that the meaning of sajjah is when the darkness first starts to appear, so the beginning of the night. And he mentions this as being a narration of uh, Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhumah and al-Hassan al-Basri rahimahullahu ta'ala that they said that it is the beginning of the night, right? when the night first comes in. Others from amongst them said it is the latter part of the night, when the night is leaving. That is the meaning of sajjah. And this is also a narration from Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhumah. And others from amongst them said that it is when the night settles, when the night settles and it becomes dark and still, and that seems to be the opinion of the majority. And Imam al-Tabari ta'ala mentions from amongst the scholars who held this position was the likes of Mujahid and Qatada and al-Dahak and Ibn Zaid amongst others. And this is the position therefore that Imam al-Tabari ta'ala himself chooses and he says is the strongest one. Right? And remember what we were mentioning yesterday in the Zimzami concerning the narrations of the Tabi'een what we call Mursal narrations, right, of, of in tafsir, and how common it is. You only need to read the likes of Imam al-Tabari in his tafsir, Ibn Abi Hatim, and others, Abdul Razak, to see that this was the position of the scholars of the past in terms of how they dealt with this type of tafsir. The statements of, of Ibn Abbas, anhuma, which is basically when the night begins, and then he has another narration when the night ends. It is possible because one of the the... the, the methodologies of some of the scholars of tafsir or one of the ways in which some of the scholars of tafsir made tafsir is by mentioning either extreme of something right mentioning the either side the beginning of something and the end of something to denote all of it right to denote the entirety so for example you know if you say the beginning of the day and the end of the day then that includes all of the day right and so sometimes that's how the arabs used to speak and so when ibn abbas radiyallahu anhuma has these two narrations that are narrated from him when the night enters and when the night ends it is possible that he's referring to all of the night in which case therefore that position of his or those two positions of his are not so different to what the scholars said because it's referring to all of the night right the night in its entirety and if we say that wadduha is the day in its entirety then likewise a layl is the night in its entirety but it is possible that Allah is the verse number one even though Allah is taking an oath by the day, He is pinpointing a time of the day where people are more likely to need Allah's help and His guidance and His protection, and that is the earlier part of the day. And then in the night, in the middle of the night, the darkness, the deep darkness of the night, because that is the time when most people who do evil and do harm and commit crimes are more likely to commit their crimes and do their evil than in the early part of the night. Right? People normally wait until midnight or after or around that time until you see the evil that they do and Allah knows best but anyway that is just uh, my my uh, uh, my own uh, take on on the narrations that are mentioned of Ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala he says that Allah taking an oath in verse number one by the day and in verse number two by the night is a sign of Allah's power and his ability subhanahu wa ta'ala 
because he is the one who created that and he is the one who created this, meaning he created both the day and the night. So within them is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's power. And Ibn Ashur in his tafsir, he said, and the reason why Allah takes an oath by the morning or by the day and then by the night is because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is making an example or he is likening. He is making a, a, an, a, a likeness between the light of the day with the light of revelation and guidance and between the darkness of the night with the darkness of the time that the Prophet would spend in the worship of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he would spend his nights in the worship of Allah Azza wa Jal. And so the day, the light of, of, of the day is like the light of guidance. And the night with its tranquility and its stillness is like when the Prophet would use that time to have tranquility in himself and stillness by worshipping Allah Azza wa Jal, by praying, by reciting Quran, by making dua and so on and so forth. And Obviously, especially in the Meccan period when this surah is revealed, the Prophet ﷺ is often reciting the Qur'an and the mushrikeen around him can hear. Or he's often going to the Haram, to, to, to the Kaaba and praying. And any of the, of the Quraysh or their leaders, leaders and their nobles who are around the Kaaba at that time of the night uh, can also hear the recitation of the Qur'an. Ibn al-Qayyim, ta'ala, he says that when Allah makes an oath, by the day and by the night and its stillness. This is from the blessings that Allah bestowed upon His Prophet Because when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by the day and by the night, He is taking an oath to the truthfulness also of the message of the Prophet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is taking an oath to the truthfulness of the Prophet How? Because when Allah takes these oaths, and then when Allah Azza will say in verse number three that he hasn't forsaken the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that he doesn't hate him, that he doesn't detest him, it is as a result of what the Quraysh uh, said, right? And what their, their claims that he has been abandoned, that he's been forsaken, that Allah Azza doesn't like or love the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So when Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala reveals the rebuttal to that, the refutation of those statements of Quraysh, Allah Azza does so by taking an oath by the day and by the night takes an oath by the day and he takes an oath by the night subhanahu wa ta'ala and so Ibn Qayyim says this shows the favor that Allah bestows upon our Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and then he says rahimahullah ta'ala and furthermore likewise or furthermore the light of the day is an example as Ibn Ashur also mentioned after the darkness of the night the light of the day is like the light of the guidance that was given to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam by which the Prophet could fight against his enemies and those people who opposed him. And that comes after the darkness of the night. So the darkness of the night is broken by the sun of the morning or by the light of the morning. Then likewise, the Prophet he came with the light of guidance and that was used to break the darkness of ignorance and shirk and disbelief that the people of that time were upon in terms of their worshipping other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Allah Azzawajal mentions, uh, Sadiq Hassan Khan mentions a, a, a nice point in his tafsir concerning this surah and how Allah Azzawajal mentions the day before he mentions the night. But he says that in other parts of the Quran, in other places, Allah Azzawajal does the opposite. Allah takes an oath because in this you know, surah we can say that Allah takes an oath by the day and then the night because the night is a reflection of the light of guidance and he comes to take away the darkness of shirk and so on. 
you know, you can make that kind of reflection, uh, even though it's not something which 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 is a statement of tafsir from the early scholars, but it's a reflection that you can make, as Ibn Qayyim and others have done. But Siddiq Hassan Khan Taala says, but also in the Quran, right, we have the opposite, where the night precedes the day. Allah takes an oath by the night first and then the day. So, for example, in Surah Al-Layl, وَاللَّيْلِ إِذَا يَغْشَى Allah takes an oath by the night first. وَالنَّهَارِ إِذَا تَجَلَّى And by the day, second. Right? And so now it's, it's, it's changed around, it's swapped. The night comes before the day. And Siddiq Hassan Khan, Taala, he says, because Allah Azza wa Jal shows favor in both, meaning that there is a blessed time in both. Right? There is a blessed time in this and a blessed time in that. And so for the one who's studying and learning and seeking knowledge and wanting to do much good, then the daytime is a time that is blessed. And the one who wants to use the night to pray and worship Allah Azza wa Jal and read Quran and make dua and turn to Allah Azza wa Jal in tawbah and istighfar, then the night is also blessed. And so the, and that's why Siddiq Hassan Khan says that sometimes you have one being mentioned first and the other times the other one being mentioned first because for the believer there is good in both and there is barakah and blessing in both. And that is a nice reflection because sometimes you forget that it is swapped around in, elsewhere in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why Ibn Ashur and what others mention when they make their reflection on the day and the night rather than saying that the night is a time or the night is a reflection of the darkness of shirk they don't just stop there, right? Or, or like Ibn Qayyim said, because Ibn Qayyim mentions other position that Ibn Ashur mentioned as well, that it is a time of tranquility and peace for those who wish to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? Because Allah azza wa jal takes an oath by the night at times as well. And even in this surah, it, the, the, night that, the, the oath that is taken by the night is not in any way to uh, diminish the night or to, or to belittle its status. Rather, it has a great status in our religion, as we know, in terms of the acts of worship that a person can perform during the night. So anyway, either way, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by these two things in this surah. So Allah azawajal takes an oath by the morning or by the day. And then he takes an oath by the night subhanahu wa ta'ala. And those two oaths are being taken in order to establish what is going to be mentioned in verse number three. And what is going to be mentioned in verse number three. What is being mentioned in verse number three? The statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, مَا وَدَّعَكَ رَبُّكَ وَمَا قَلَىٰ Your Lord has not forsaken you, nor does he hate you. And that is again the translation of Abdul Halim. In the translation of Mufti Taqi, your Lord has neither forsaken you, nor does he become displeased. Muhsin Khan, your Lord, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, has neither forsaken you, nor hated you. And Sahih International, your Lord has not taken leave of you, nor has he detested you. Right? And very similar again in terms of the translations that are being mentioned there. As Imam Al-Qurtubi and others mentioned, this is the Jawab Al-Qasam. So as we've said numerous times now in, in many of these surahs, because all of them begin with Allah taking an oath, subhanahu wa ta'ala. When Allah takes an oath, there must be a Jawab Al-Qasam. What is Allah taking an oath for? What is the response? Meaning what is the, the second part to the oath? I swear by Allah, but what? Right? Because otherwise it's... It's incomplete. You take an oath by Allah in order to establish something, to promise something, to do something. So what is Allah Azza wa taking an oath for? هذا جواب القسم. Verse number three is the response or the reason for which Allah Azza wa has taken these oaths. And that is, as Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala said, ما ودعك ربك. Indeed, your Lord has not forsaken you or left you. وما قال, and nor does he hate you. 
right? That is the tafsir of Ibn Kathir rahimahullahu ta'ala. The, so the, the principle that Allah Azza wa is establishing therefore is the in response and rebuting or rebutting and refuting what the Quraysh said that the Prophet has been forsaken, that Allah detests him, that his shaitan has left him, that his devil, meaning Jibreel alayhi salam, as, as what they, as the woman of Quraysh said, has forsaken the Prophet And Allah Azza wa is refuting that claim. Allah takes an oath by the day and by the night. And there is nothing beyond those two. Either it's daytime or it's nighttime. Meaning that Allah Azza wa the Lord of, Lord of both, subhanahu wa ta'ala, has not forsaken you, O Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Abu Hayyan, rahimahullah ta'ala, in his tafsir, he mentions this word, wadda'aka. There is a shadh qira'a, so it's not one of the ten that we read in, but one of the shadh qira'as, in it, it is read, wadda'aka, without the shadda and the dal. So not wadda'aka, wadda'aka, wadda'aka. And that is because the word wadda'a, and wada'a means to say farewell. Right? It means to say farewell. It means to, and that's why, you know, you, you, the hajjatul wada'a is called hajjatul wada'a, the farewell hajj. Right? And when you uh, say farewell to someone and you say goodbye in Arabic, it is called tawdi'a. Right? And, and that's why one of the du'as that you read when, you, when you're leaving someone or you're going to not see them for a while is you say, astawdi'ukallah. Right? From wada'a, which basically means that I'm going to leave you. There is a difference though between wadda'a and wada'a or wada'a. And that is that the word wadda'a with the shadda is a more eloquent form or it is a more emphasized form of the word, which basically means that you are being left. And in it implies that Shaykh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shaqiti and others say, you, it is, it is the, in it is implied the meaning of being forsaken, of being left. In it there is implied the meaning that the person who has been left was being left out of some type of dislike, right? You dislike someone, so you left them in a very strong way. Basically, I've abandoned you. I've forsaken you. Whereas with the lighter form, which is wada, right, is to just simply say farewell. And when you say, say, say farewell to someone, especially if that person is someone that you like or some, it, doesn't, it has a very soft meaning. Farewell is a nice way to say, I'm going to depart from you now hopefully again we will meet right there is within it some compassion some love some kindness some gentleness but the word wadda'a is a more harsher form because of its emphasis right and as the arabic language the principle says ziyadatun fil mabna ziyadatun fil ma'na if the letters increase or the the form of the word increases by a shadda by an extra letter by whatever it may be upon the root word then the meaning also increases meaning that it goes to more extreme in its meaning right and so that's why the word wadda'a is a more emphasized form of the word wada'a. And so that's the meaning that is being mentioned because this is the statement of the people of Quraysh. So they're not saying, oh, oh Messenger of Allah, you know, oh, oh, oh Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, these people are just, you know, your, your, the, the angel Jibreel alayhi wa sallam or Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has simply, you know, left you for a while. They're saying he's been abandoned. He's been forsaken, right? He's someone who's never going to receive that revelation again. And that is why you see, the translations that you see and the statements amongst the scholars of tafsir that you also see as well. And that's why you have the shadh qira'a, which is wada'aka, because it is a more, you know, like kinder kind of form of what is being said. In which case, you know, if we, if we, take, um, if we take that meaning as a tafsir, or we take that recitation of uh, as a tafsir, 
then what we understand as, as some of the scholars of tafsir like, like Jamal al-Din al-Qasimi rahimahullah and others said that therefore we see that, the, that Allah Azzawajal didn't abandon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. We know that he didn't abandon the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. But when there was a cessation in revelation, there's a break in revelation as happened sometimes or a number of times during the life of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam two or three times. That is a break, not out of dis, uh, being, uh, the Prophet Sallallahu being despised or being disliked or in any way being abandoned or forsaken, but rather it is one done out of love. Just as sometimes the people that you love most, your parents, your wife, your children, your husband, whoever they may be, sometimes you have to depart from them. You're traveling, you're going to make hajj, you, you know, for whatever reason you need to go away for a few days, you have a farewell between you and them, and that's very common. And so that's the uh, the meaning of the word wadda'a. But Allah Azzawajal uses the more emphasized form because that is what the Quraysh claimed. So when Allah Azzawajal refutes their claim, he uses the same word as him, as he does, uh, as as the people of Quraysh did, rather, and similar to it is the word qala as well, as we will come on to uh, in a short while. There's a number of narrations that you find concerning this surah, and in terms of its revelation, and how it was revealed, and when it was revealed, and we mentioned already last week the narration of Sahih Bukhari of Jundub radiyallahu an. That, that spoke about the cause of revelation for this surah. But within the books of tafsir, and even sometimes in the collections of hadith, you will find a number of narrations that speak about the cause of revelation. The one that I mentioned to you last week on Bukhari is the most authentic because it's in Sahih Bukhari. And it's the one that is uh, also the, the one of the briefest, as often is the case in, in some of the most authentic narrations concerning this, they're often very brief without going into detail. And the extra details that you find are often in other narrations where there is some doubt or some weakness in terms of the veracity of those narrations. Essentially though, before we go on to this, because now we will speak about some of those narrations, and uh, in particular what Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala uh, had to say concerning those narrations in his Fathul Bari, but before we do, there's a, a couple of things to understand. The first of them is that we know, and it is, has been established in the Sunnah, the Prophet ﷺ authentically, that there were a number of breaks in revelation. What we mean by a break is that revelation stops for a few days. Stops. And the Prophet ﷺ isn't visited by Jibreel ﷺ. No Quran is revealed to him. And so that doesn't mean necessarily that every day there was a verse of the Quran being revealed. But what it does mean is that every day the Prophet ﷺ would be visited by Jibreel ﷺ, either you know for one reason or another, or he's taught something about the religion, not necessarily Quran, but he's being receiving revelation in one form or another, a dream or something, or whatever it may be. When there's a cessation or a break in revelation, he gets nothing. That is what we're referring to. That is authentically established in the Sunnah on at least two occasions. The first of them is after the first initial revelation of Surah Iqra, and then there is a break, and it is said amongst you know some of the scholars and in some narrations that that lasted for about two weeks, up to two weeks. So it was a good while where the Prophet thought that he's no longer going to receive anything else, and then Quran is revealed again. And the second one is the one that is mentioned in this surah for Surah Al Duha, right? And that is that there is a revelation stop, right? There's a cease of revelation in the narration that we mentioned in Bukhari for two or three days. So it is lesser in duration, but there is a stop, and then revelation begins again. And another occasion in which it is mentioned, and there is some dispute as to the authenticity of that narration, is the famous narration that we have in the 
causes of revelation for the stories in Surah Al-Kahf, where it is said that the Quraysh sent some people to the Jewish rabbis of Medina to ask a number of questions to the Prophet asked them to give the Quraysh a number of questions for the Prophet So they asked about the people of the cave and, and the king Dhul-Qarnayn and so on. And they came back and then the Prophet told them, the Quraysh who came with these questions, to come back and he would give them the answer, but he didn't say, insha'Allah. And then, you know, the revelation stops. There is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars of hadith as to whether that's an acceptable narration or not. But on the saying that it is an acceptable narration, that it's authentic, that it's acceptable, then within that narration also there is a pause in revelation. Now, is that pause in revelation the same as the one of Surah Al-Duha? That doesn't seem to be the case according to what is mentioned in the narration of Al-Bukhari. In which case, it is possible that there was a third time. But the point is here, because of those different incidents that are similar in nature, in the sense that all of them speak about a break in revelation, but slightly different because each one, their context is slightly different. What you often have in narrations is that there is a merging between them, that there is cross-contamination, for better, for lack of a better word, where narrations have been mixed up with other narrations. And that's why you have some differences concerning this. But anyway... Um, you have Ibn Hajar rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the revelation or the cause of revelation for this particular surah, which is Surah Al-Duha, is the one that is mentioned by Imam Al-Bukhari, the narration that he collects of Jundub radiallahu and the one that we mentioned last week where the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa was ill and it took a couple of days or two or three days, it lasted and he didn't receive revelation. So the Quraysh started to say that he's been abandoned and then Allah Azza wa revealed to him Surah Al-Duha. And the Prophet and Ibn Hajar rather, ta'ala, says that the narration of Surah Al-Duha or the narration in Al-Bukhari of this revelation of Surah Al-Duha only says that the Prophet was unwell. And it doesn't speak about the reason or the type of illness that he was suffering from. Why he's unwell? What happened? What caused his sickness? And the narrations that say that it was, for example, that he, that he hurt his finger, that he was bleeding or something, Ibn Hajar says, are inauthentic. They're not mentioned in the authentic narrations of that particular narration. But anyway, whatever it may be, that's one narration. And that's the one that we said is the most authentic that is in Al-Bukhari. Al-Tabarani, as Ibn Hajar mentions, Al-Tabarani has another narration. And that is that he says that the reason why revelation stopped and the Jibreel will no longer come into his house is because of a dog that was kept in the house of the Prophet Wasallam, or a, 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 a picture of a dog or a, a kind of like a, a small, um, you know, like a teddy bear or something that, that resembled a dog or something. And so Jibreel didn't come in and then he came back to the Prophet Wasallam, and he informed him the reason why and the Prophet then removed that dog, whatever it was, in whichever way, shape or form it was. And that's why he came in. And that's a famous narration. That is a famous narration that, are, that is narrated in the books of the Sunan. That that happened on one occasion. Jibreel said that the angels don't go into a house in which there is a dog or in which there are pictures. That's an authentic narration. But that narration, the ones that it's in the books of the Sunan, doesn't mention it in accordance to Surah Al-Duha or a breaking revelation. Right? So this being a cause of revelation is inauthentic. But the story itself is found in the other books of the Sunnah. But this narration of At-Tabarani that, that pins or joins between that narration and between this issue of the, of the, of the break in revelation is something which is inauthentic. And that's what I mean by you know, cross-contamination or mixing of narrations. Because again, 
the authentic narration says Jibreel doesn't come into the house. And so some narrators seem to have taken that and joined it with this other narration of, of Surah Al-Duha and Allah Azza wa knows best. A third narration that is mentioned by Imam Al-Tabari in his tafsir is that the reason uh, for that is that the Prophet Wasallam didn't receive revelation for a number of days and then the Prophet Wasallam was told by the Quraysh that he's been abandoned and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed this surah, right? And in one narration or one wording of that same narration, the Prophet himself says, because of a number of days have passed with that revelation, that I fear that my companion, meaning Jibreel has abandoned me. But again, those are also weak narrations, but they're mentioned in the tafsir of Imam At-Tabari. Uh, another one that is mentioned, and, and Ibn Hajar says about all of these other narrations that we mentioned, the ones in Tabarani and the ones by Imam Al-Tabari and all of them except for the one in Al-Bukhari, he says all of them are weak. All of them have weakness within them. And Allah Azza wa Jal knows, knows best. Uh, another narration that he mentions is uh, that the, 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 ceasing, the ceasing of, of, of revelation, the revelation stop came and the Quraysh said, that were it from Allah, it would never have stopped, meaning that there would never have been a break, meaning Allah would give him revelation all the time. There would never have been a break. That's another narration that is also mentioned in the books of, of Tafsir and in the books, some of the collections of Hadith as well. And he says, the the other narration that he mentions then, uh, Ibn Hajar ta'ala, is the one that we mentioned about Surah Al-Kahf, right? the narration of Surah Al-Kahf and how it's been, how it stops. And then you have the narration, the revelation of Surah Al-Duha, according to some of those narrations, like for example, Ibn Ishaq in his Sirah mentions a narration that links the two, the two together. Ibn Hajar Taala says that is a very, like uh, you know, a very uh, far-fetched uh, narration, a far-fetched kind of conclusion that the that even if the story of Surah Al-Kahf is authentic and we accept that narration to be an authentic narration that after that ceasing of revelation, it is Surah Al-Duha that comes and is revealed to the Prophet Ibn Hajar says the most that we can say is that the two timelines were very close. So this incident of Surah Al-Duha that is mentioned in Al-Bukhari that is authentic because it's in Al-Bukhari and what, mention, what is mentioned in Surah Al-Kahf if we take that as being authentic, both of them happen towards the same time, around about the same time. And so they were around a similar period. And Allah Azza wa Jalla says that's the most that we can say. But to link the two, that those questions were asked, then there's a break in revelation, then it is Surah Al-Duha that is revealed. He says that this is something which is also far-fetched, as is pretty clear from those people who studied the narrations. And he says, and Allah Azza wa Jalla knows best. And that is basically Ibn Hajar, rahimahullah ta'ala, doing what he does best in Fath al-Bari, which is taking one incident and bringing all of the narrations that you have concerning that and then passing judgment over them. And I wanted to mention that today, not only because it's an interesting thing and, and uh, you know, the, the whole issue of of how of how many times did revelation, was there a break in revelation, then which surah was it that was revealed, that in itself is an interesting discussion, but also to show you a methodology from the methodologies of tafsir. And that is the methodology of gathering narrations together and then trying to decipher between them or trying to judge between them in terms of their authenticity, not authenticity, or as Ibn Hajar did, to see which ones have been mixed up with other ones. So this one is talking about a different incident, but someone in the narrations or one of the narrators seems to have mistakenly added it to uh, the issue of Surah Al-Duha, for example. That's a very important methodology of tafsir. And it's something which 
not enough concentration is given on, right? And that is to connect the incidents of the Quran that are being mentioned from a hadithi point of view and to go through them in detail. And Ibn Hajj ta'ala is someone who's very good at that because Imam al-Bukhari, as we know, rahimahullah, has a whole section in his tafsir, in his sahih on tafsir, right? He has a whole section, one of his main books in his Sahih al-Bukhari is the book of tafsir. And so Ibn Hajj rahimahullah ta'ala goes through that in some detail. So Allah says, ma rabbuka, and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, wa ma qala. And the word qala means to, to dislike or to hate. Right? And some of the scholars like Ibn, Ibn Ashur and, and others said that the word qala or qila, the root word, means al-bughd al-shadid, an intense hatred. So we're not just talking about a dislike here. Right? And we're not just talking about someone who's, who's disliked, but we're talking about detesting, hating. Right? That's what it refers to in the origin of the Arabic language. And that's because, again, of the statements made by the people of Quraysh. And this is therefore the response of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in response to what they said. And that, that is that Allah Azza wa is saying that, that he does not detest the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, nor has he forsaken him sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In verse number four, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then establishes very beautifully the reason why, right? A, a, a consolation or a way of consoling the Prophet that the break in revelation or what they say the, the, the accusations of the Quraysh and, and what they say concerning what happened to the Prophet or when revelation does break for whatever, however long or however many days it occurs that's because they're judging things based upon their dunya standards and this is one of the most amazing and most beautiful principles of the Quran and it is something which we often fail to remember and that is that we in our lives often judge things based upon our human worldly standards. We judge people based upon the way that they look, the way that they dress, the money that they have, the qualifications that they hold, the titles that they have, the lineage that they possess, the, the color of their skin, all of that stuff. That's the way we judge people. And we look at them and we judge them based upon what? Our dunya parameters, our dunya standards. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he judges people, as he mentions in numerous places in the Quran, including in this verse, and as the Prophet mentioned in a number of narrations, his judgment is based upon a different scale, a different standard. And that is the standard of iman and taqwa. And Allah couldn't care less how much wealth you had, what position you had in your job, what career you hold, what qualifications you possess, what country you come from, what language you speak, the color of your skin, or anything else. Those are simply things that Allah Azza wa Jal has dis- distributed and given to people as He will subhanahu wa ta'ala. They have no measure of righteousness or goodness or piety or anything else in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Inna kramakum indallahi atqakum. It is the measure of piety and iman that Allah Azza wa Jal looks at. But one of the offshoots of, of that standard and that scale is that we think that what we have of good has to be attained in the dunya. The blessings, we need them in the dunya. Rizq, we need it in the dunya. Wealth, we need it in the dunya. Everything has to be dunya-based. And when it's not based on the dunya, then it's because Allah doesn't like us or we've done something wrong or we're less better than or we're, 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 we're worse than other people and, and so on. That's something which is a standard that all, all of us, if not most of us, have. And Allah Azza wa in verse number 4 establishes actually that it is the opposite. And the future or the next life will be better for you than the first, meaning than this life, right? Uh, the, the, the translation of 
Muhsin Khan, and indeed the hereafter is better for you than the present life of this world. Right? And I think that is a better translation rather than future and the past. Because the word Akhirah, when it is mentioned in the Quran, it's referring to Yawm Al-Qiyamah and the life of the next world, not necessarily your future in this world. But anyway, Imam Al-Tabari said that Allah is saying that what Allah has given to you and prepared for you and saved for you in the next life is much better than what those people have in this life. And the Prophet takes this principle. He takes this principle and he applies it. And that's why we know that the Prophet didn't care about money, didn't care about wealth, didn't care about all of those things that people considered to be important in terms of their worldly standards. So in the hadith, and it's a long narration of Umar an, when he goes and he visits the Prophet وسلم, when the Prophet is 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 being is uh, spending a break from his wives. He's spending a month away from his wives. Radiallahu anhu najma'in and the relation is in al-Bukhari and in other than al-Bukhari. And Umar radiallahu an out of fear because the rumors are going around that the Prophet has divorced all of his wives. Obviously, one of those wives is the daughter of Umar, Hafsa radiallahu anha. So Umar wants to go and see. So he finds where the Prophet is staying. And he goes and he sees him and he looks at him and he enters upon him and he, it's a long narration, but he enters some happiness upon the Prophet and he speaks to him and he makes him smile and so on. And then Umar begins to cry because he sees the Prophet lying on a mat of straw with hardly any comforts or leisures or, or anything in his house or where he's staying that would give him any measure of comfort. And so when the Prophet sits up from where he's lying down, the straw mat has left, the pattern of the straw mat, straw mat is seen in the side of the Prophet upon his skin, as is often the case when you're lying upon that coarse kind of harsh material, it embeds its pattern within you and on your skin. So the Prophet said, O oh, Umar, what makes you cry? And Umar said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, this is the leaders of Persia and the leaders of Byzantine Rome and all of the good that they have. And you are the Prophet and Messenger of Allah and this is how you live. And the Prophet said, Umar, is it not enough? that they will have this in the dunya, but we will have the akhirah. They have the dunya, but for us, we have eternity of the akhirah, inshallah ta'ala. That is the principle that Allah Azza wa mentions to it. And one of the most amazing things of tafsir is if you were to take the principles of the Qur'an and to see how the Prophet wasallam applies that in a practical way, in the way that he lives, in the way that he teaches his companions, in the way that he conducts himself wasallam, you will see and not just him, but the companions as well, take these principles and they apply them. Often we, we hear the principle, we learn about the principle, but the principle doesn't resonate, doesn't make a difference to our lives, doesn't make a difference to the way that we act and behave on a day-to-day basis. And so yes, we know that the Akhirah is better, but this first time that a calamity, a difficulty, a problem befalls us, we lose all hope and we despair. Because the principle hasn't settled within our heart. The The iman and the tawakkul that's needed for that to happen isn't present and so yes we understand at a logical level at a, at a mind level at a brain level we understand what the principle is and what it means and how it works logically but in terms of having an impact upon your iman your heart your character your dealings the way that you are that's something which requires more than just being able to understand intellectually a principle or a point and so that's the difference. The Prophet ﷺ is given this principle by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It doesn't matter what they say. 
They say about the Prophet that he's crazy. They say that he's been forsaken. They say that he has no lineage left because all of his sons have died. They say so many things about him. None of that needs to worry you. All those people who follow you, O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the companions and those who come after them and every believer that comes after them because what is more important to Allah is the akhirah. That is the standard by which we judge success and failure. That is the true standard where you know whether someone has actually passed or failed. A person, as is in a number of hadith, the Prophet ﷺ speaking about people who in this world no one would look twice at, no one would listen to, no one would even dream of giving their child's hand in marriage to such a person. But in the sight of Allah if that person was to make an oath, Allah would fulfill it on their behalf. Right? And then you have the opposite, those people who are arrogant and proud, but they have everything in this world, everything in terms of its comforts and luxuries. But in the sight of Allah, they are worthless and they are insignificant. Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the Prophet sallallahu is being told that the life of the next world is far greater and better than the life of this world. And that is why he says that the Prophet sallallahu was from Azhadun Nas, from the people who had no attachment to this life and from those people who would leave the, the dunya and everything within it. They had no care for anything in this world, as is known from studying his seerah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And that is why even at the end of his life, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Ibn Kathir says, when he's given the choice of either staying forever in this world, when each Prophet, as the Prophet is told at the time of death, is given a choice between two things. Either they can remain living or they can go and meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Kathir says, even if they remain living, what is their end point? The end point for them is still Jannah. When Allah Azza decrees eventually that the world ends and whatever happens, is eventually where do those prophets end up going anyway? They will go to Jannah and eternity in Jannah with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the, in, with the highest level in Jannah that they will have and the closeness that they will have to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But each of those prophets, what do they choose instead? Even though their eventual ending would be Jannah. Right? And we, if we were to be given that choice, do you want eternity, eternal life in this world? And then eventually you go into Jannah anyway. Or would you rather go now and meet Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? I think many of us would choose eternity and Jannah. Right? Because again, it's that weakness of Iman. But what does the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam choose? He chooses Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because he understands the reality of this world. Right? Those hadith that we hear that this world is the prison of the believer. And all of those hadith that we hear, the Prophet understood what that meant. So when you're given a choice, why don't you choose what is with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And that is a very beautiful tafsir of Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala and one of the points of benefit that he mentions rahimahullah ta'ala. So I think with that inshallah ta'ala we will conclude for today's lesson. I think that's a good place to stop before we continue with verse number 5 bidnillahi ta'ala. And as I said inshallah ta'ala, hopefully by next week I will give you some more information in terms of the survey idea that I have and, and the feedback that I would like from you. And inshallah, it will be something which is brief and easy to do. Um, and, and therefore, inshallah, not too time consuming, but your feedback is important. And it's something which inshallah, I would encourage all of you to uh, express yourselves and, and share your voice. If there's any questions, inshallah, we can, we can take them. Otherwise, we can conclude for today. Uh, did you manage to find any examples in Arabic where they use the whole of something to infer a part of it? The one we discussed last week, turning the face to the Qibla or freeing a neck were related to using a part of something to infer the whole. 
you want the whole of something to infer a part of it. Um, okay, anyone can think of, of an example of that where Allah mentions the whole of something, but essentially we're referring to a part of it. Um, I have something on the top tip of my tongue or, or in my mind, but it's not something which I can uh, grasp at the moment. But inshallah ta'ala, if, if I will try to look for this inshallah by next week. But there are a number of examples where this is done in, 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 the, in the Quran and in the Sunnah as well. Where the whole of something is mentioned uh, and only a part of it is, is being referred to. But inshallah, let me, let me look uh, again and inshallah I will come to it next week with Milay ta'ala. Are there any other questions? Did Mujahid understand Ibn Abbas's opinion as Saja as the whole of the night, even though he mentioned only the onset and end of the night? That is that is possible, right? That is possible. So, um, in terms of you know, one of the ways that you can you can look at this or look at and understand the positions of the likes of Ibn Abbas and others from amongst the companions is to see how the, their students understood. To stu- their students understood this or, or their statements and their principles. So for example, if Mujahid ta'ala is saying something and we understand that Mujahid spent so much time with the Prophet with, with Abdullah ibn Abbas learning from him tafsir and so on, then yes, you know, it's possible that you can say that, that was he has a better understanding of Ibn Abbas's position than he than we do today. But at the same time, you know, Mujahid is a scholar in his own right. And so it's possible that he is uh, that he is also uh, formulating his own position. He's speaking about his own understanding. And so therefore it is difficult to make an, an exact you know declaration. You can't for sure say or confirm. That's exactly what is happening, but it is possible, and Allah Azza knows best. Okay, uh, just, just I was just checking now for the uh, example that the sister was asking for. Concerning where a whole is, is mentioned and only a part of it is being referred to, some of the scholars gave the example of the verse that they place their ears in their their, their fingers in their ears uh, out of you know because they don't want to hear the, the Quran being recited. Uh, so the, the munafiqeen will place their fingers in their ears. And clearly it's not referring to all of the finger but the tips of their fingers, right? And so that's something that some of the scholars have mentioned as an example of that. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Uh, Allah is saying that what is coming is better. Is this implying the fatha of Mecca or the success of Islam? That's something which some of the scholars mentioned uh, concerning uh, what Allah Azza wa has repay or prepared for the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam as they said also in terms of Surah Al-Sharh Some of the scholars said that with the hardship that they're facing will come the ease of expansion and conquest and so on. And so yes, that's something. But Allah Azza wa Jal, what is referring to primarily in this surah is Al-Akhirah because it says, وَلَا الْآخِرَةُ 
And so therefore, and that doesn't mean by the way that there's no good in the dunya. That's a misunderstanding of the verse also. That just because the next life is better, doesn't mean that there's no good in the dunya. Because everything that we do in terms of good and ibadah and khayr and seeking knowledge and everything is also from the good. And that's something which is good in the dunya as well. But in terms of a whole and generally speaking as a principle, then no doubt the akhirah is better. And Allah Azza wa knows best. Okay, so let us uh, stop there inshallah ta'ala for today. And inshallah ta'ala we will continue next week. Barakallahu feekum. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wa alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.